welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 39, Prestige from 2006, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Mariello. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this movie, I wrote in the uh, description for this episode, I don't know what's more impressive about this movie, that he made it and it's as good as it is, or that he just made it between Batman movies. Like, we were talking about it last week, that alternating Batman movies with just other movies is crazy in and of itself. But to make a movie as good as this one, it's like, wait, what? Like, how? 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 Yeah, and between two really good Batman movies, no less. But I am still surprised as ever watching it just recently for this show, how great this movie is and, and just how much I love it. And this was the last Christopher Nolan movie I didn't see in theaters. So I made sure not to make that mistake again. Even at the time, I don't I don't even remember. I think I remember The Illusionist coming out more than I remember this movie coming out. But I, I have never seen that movie. And this is maybe the one Christopher Nolan movie I, I might have seen the most. Real quick, I'm glad you brought The Illusionist because this little tidbit blew my mind. We remember that the same year that The Prestige came out, the movie we're talking about tonight, The Illusionist starring Edward Norton came out. But also that same year, a movie I've never heard of, a movie called Scoop came out, also about magic and magicians, also starring Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, directed by Woody Allen. Oh, that's why. Okay. That movie is wretched. Oh, we have not covered a good Woody Allen movie on any podcast that we've done so far, and I don't anticipate them doing it. Yeah, there'll be no cinemakers, Woody Allen, for sure. Yeah, unless you're doing Keaton Club, I don't think you're ever going to do a good Woody Allen movie. Anyway, Chris, sorry to have cut you off for this. Why don't you give us your, your opening thoughts on The Prestige? Oh, I like that you brought up The Illusionist because it's been a minute since I've seen The Prestige, and I actually had the ending of The Illusionist in my head while I was watching this. I was just like... Wait, this is all building up to Christian Bale and Scarlett Johansson, like, escaping and living in, like, a house in the countryside, right? Right? <laughs> oh. Oh, he's dead. Oh. Wait. Oh, no. I was thinking of that other movie. So, yeah, I, um, I kind of got, I prestiged myself on this one. I, I incepted a, a different ending to this movie. Ooh, you're using all sorts of Christopher Dolan verbs. I know, right? So, I really enjoyed this on rewatch, and I, I wanted to know what this movie is like if you've seen it for the first time, because... I've said this before, I think, on Cage Club Universe-related shows, that if I could have one, like, mediocre X-Men power, it would just be to, like, just, like, undo some memory, like, Eternal Sunshine things out of my head so I can experience them for the first time again. And I would love to experience this movie for the first time. So I made sure to watch this with uh, my girlfriend, who had never seen it before, so I could try to kind of experience it through her eyes as well as my own and get both perspectives on it. So that was a little interesting experiment that I did while watching this and it was really interesting to see some of the things that I thought were so blatantly obvious you know this movie does a lot of hiding in plain sight and it apparently still it works it works the fake mustache does it I guess I kind of feel like watching if, after you've seen this the first time for me watching it every time after that feels like watching it for the second time like even if it's the fourth or fifth time I feel like it's still the second time I've watched it because the movie convinces me and I convince myself of certain things that by the end I change my mind about every single time I watch this movie um, and maybe we'll hit some of those things a little later but like I also forget certain parts and and also the way that it's told the order in which it's told I never remember that correctly either so the structure of the film always sort of re-engages me again on another level too and then just you know the amazing acting and I mean it's great all around it looks amazing Nolan nailing the period like this is the first time that he's really going to go sort of like full tilt 
period piece, uh, even though that's not all that it is. But like, yeah, the period setting well, Dunkirk. Is, is amazing. Well, this is the first time. Oh, first time. Go. Okay. Like, yeah, and I, I feel like he goes he goes kind of a little further in this than than Dunkirk. I mean, this just seems more complex and on a whole other level than he's even been working on, even more than Batman, even really. But it seems like he's at that level and he's really maintaining this like mainstream stride here. I was saying to Chris yesterday or Saturday or whenever I was watching this, whenever we were talking about this, that I'm a little, not bummed, I sort of wish that I had the Eternal Sunshine or the Days of Future Past memory wipe condition where I could just go back in time and rewatch it for the first time because I had remembered that Christian Bale had a brother. That's the sort of the the prestige, the literal prestige of this movie. That's the third act twist, that it's two men living the life of one, and that's how the magic, the quote-unquote magic happens. But it's still remarkable to me how good and engaging this movie is when you know what's coming. Even knowing the twists, it's still engaging, it's still great, it's still engrossing. And I think I think that's just, you know, there, there's other movies that live and die on the twist, and once you know the twist, it doesn't really work. But I think movies like this and also like Fight Club, where even if you know the twist, it works out well, it's the ultimate testament to the script, to the story, to the directing, to the acting, to everything. You can know where it's going, and yet it's, it's literally not the destination, it's a journey. I can't be kind enough about this movie. And all these movies have to work that way because there is so much revelation and chronology manipulation throughout. Memento is, I think, the same way. Being able to see the things that are happening and kind of being powerless to stop it. But what Nolan does, and I've been saying this over and over again and will continue to say this, his ability to still extract emotional responses from the audience is what makes this so rewatchable. Yeah, I definitely had a strong reaction several times in this movie that I didn't remember having early. Maybe it's because we're doing Nolan like this in order, especially in, in Memento, like seeing that, which I hadn't before. I'm getting a little deeper past sort of his tricks, maybe, and into uh, what else he's trying to say here. And I think he's doing a good job here keeping us going along with this movie. I think like what really helps is there's some really strong themes going on in, in this story. Brotherhood, rivalry, obsession, the lengths one goes to to accomplish their dreams it's yeah it's some really deep-rooted stuff and to a degree i also think this is where nolan starts using his movies to explain himself and his own process and what he's going through with with filmmaking and so we're getting a nice sort of behind the scenes of what's going on in his mind and process as we're watching it happen as well that is completely completely accurate I saw all of that as well. This movie is is maybe the Nolanist of all the Nolan movies, I want to say, because it really dives into his overarching theme throughout. I mean, all of the movies that we're doing in this large block of Nolan from Memento till The Dark Knight Rises, I guess maybe except Insomnia, but that's not really his movie. They're all really about identity and coming to terms with who you are. And this does that in so many different ways on so many different levels. At the same time, as you said, it really is a movie about Nolan. It's it's very meta. I think this is the most meta we will ever get Christopher Nolan. This is a movie about the magic of filmmaking in a lot of ways, and Nolan projects a lot of his triumphs and anxieties about being a creator into this movie, and it's fascinating to watch through that lens. There is a wonderful YouTube video that I sent both of you, and I also posted on our Twitter, which is at Cage Club Pod, that there is a, a YouTuber named 
the nerd writer or just nerd writer i think he goes by nerd writer one on youtube if you just search nerd writer the prestige it comes up he does a video every other week and he gets like really deep and philosophical and it's just beautiful videos each time about usually about movies but about pop culture about whatever he sort of wants to talk about and he did one on this and he talks about how all of christopher nolan's movies are what he calls meta cinematic where it's sort of about movies but this is sort of like meta meta cinematic which is about being about movies and it's like this extra layer removed he speaks so eloquently about like why this movie is his favorite of christopher nolan's movies like they're all so good but like why this one works so well and like what it does and i feel like i just watched it again tonight right before we started recording and i I don't want to just repeat what he said i want you to go i want everybody who's listening who's interested in this to go watch that video it's only like eight minutes long go check it out but this is about the art of making movies this is about storytelling this is about from the beginning the title card the prestige is shown up over the hats and like the hats are the actual prestige in the movie like the actual duplication it's these like little meta winks at the audience that when you're just watching it and like we were talking about on the following episode the last few episodes like if you just want to watch this as a movie and enjoy it you can do that but if you want to get deep in it and if you want to really think about it more and get into it more like you can do that too and like whether you're regular intelligence or super smart or however you want to read this movie like however much effort you want to put into this there's something there for you and I think once again it's just this is incredible yeah it's really interesting like you say from that opening title card with the hats and then the very next shot is the bird trick which is the transported man trick like that is the bird trick like you know you find out there's two birds and there's two men and that's how it works like it couldn't I guess what I'm trying to say is like he's exposing it and it couldn't be more simple and yet it's still extremely fascinating I feel like part of the movie in the movie part of it is like oh a magician doesn't want to reveal his tricks because then you know where's the fun in it like you know how it's done and there's really no trick left and so you're not wowed but somehow Nolan is like here's how I'm doing it or here's how it's done and here's sort of even a step by step sequence at one point of with the bird cage and everything and that whole elaborate a trick and it's like yeah the magic's kind of gone but i'm still fascinated with the process like there's no sort of like talking down to the audience here even as complex as he gets like it's part of the point i think is that making movies is complex life is complex and that can be okay and that can be fun and it can be presented in a way that isn't over someone's head and that I think is something that he is going to get a lot of goodwill from the audience going forward with and he's done in the past I suppose but he's going to keep blowing people's minds like and he's going to do it on a level where you know it's not going to go over your head or anything like that and I just think that that is in of itself like a, a very hard feat to accomplish. How do we talk about a movie that is more out of order chronologically, narratively, than even Memento? Like, I think, if I remember the number right, there's like 146 time jumps, which I'm pretty sure is more than Memento. It's actually more than one a minute. Some of them are extremely subtle. They're not all blatant, like, jumping back and forth in time. Like, once Christopher Nolan establishes the use of the journal to go back and forth in time, we're suddenly, we're just like, we're being thrown all around, and it's like a magician's act. Like, they're just like, nothing up my sleeves, nothing up my sleeves, well, let me show you this, let me show you this, and then all of a sudden we're, we're at the end you're like oh like i don't I, like you almost like couldn't keep your eyes on it you know what i mean like like you're, you can't turn your eyes away but you're, you're trying so hard to follow the secret to try to figure it out what's going on and then by the end you're like oh no like i didn't see how he did any of that and then you're still like you just leave wowed 
And the movie does the thing that Edgar Wright does a lot in the Cornetto trilogy, which is constantly tell you the answer, but in a way that you don't accept it or you're not looking for it at that moment so you don't get it. I mean, that even happens to Hugh Jackman's character, um, Angier, when he says, well, how does he do it? And Michael Caine says... He uses a double, and he goes, no, it can't be. Meanwhile, that, that is the answer. We get that with the scene with the, the little the little boy when he first sees the birdcage trick, and he cries, and he says, you know, you killed him, you killed him. Christian Bale brings him back, then the boy goes, well, where's his, where his brother? We're constantly given the answers here in a way that is, like I said, I think this movie does hiding in plain sight over and over again, both literally and figuratively, thematically, just in general, and... The time jumps, I think, are a big part of how he gets away with that. Straight down to the fact that the first dialogue, I believe, in the movie is, if I'm not mistaken, is Michael Caine doing the magic trick for the little girl. We don't know until the last couple of shots that that is actually at the end of the movie. We're not given any kind of hints to that. And to say that this movie cheats a lot, I think this movie does cheat a little bit more than any other Nolan movie, but it feels so much more fitting because of the setting and the source material the journal is just a brilliant stroke it's like i feel like it's part of the film's like master stroke because it's like we've been saying all along like it's supplying voiceover it's supplying time jumps flashbacks and stuff and it's all within the context of the journals and they're each reading each other's journals so it's not even necessarily what actually happened but how they're imagining it may have gone down through the other person's eyes you know like I'm thinking when Hugh Jackman's reading Borman's journal it's like not exactly how it went down but how Hugh Jackman sort of envisions Borman living his life um, it's just just a really smart move there just overall that kind of the glue like I agree like if you watch this in order I think it would kind of suck like I think it relies a lot on the structure but again that's just a very Nolan thing and he's not really going to do that again so much until Dunkirk like he'll always play with the concept of time but that's a whole thing with film like we'll get to it more in, in Inception I think too he takes more advantage of that but just how much time you can get away with between a cut all that kind of stuff is really in play here what's making it work where it would fail I feel in other movies, you know, just like poor voiceover and flashbacks just for the sake of it. The journals also create this concept throughout of two, I guess, completely unreliable narrators because by the end of both journals, we find out that they are fakes, that they are long cons on the person reading them because like the last page is like, LOL, haha, JK. <laughs> so we don't know what's going on throughout any of this. Penn and Teller always say that they are, like, lying to their audience throughout their entire show. And I feel like we are being lied to throughout this entire movie. And that's what you go there for, right? No one gets that. You're going to movies as escape, as catharsis, to be lied to. You know, we don't. there is no such thing as spandex-clad superheroes out there saving the world and stuff like that. It's a break from the fucking hell world that's out there most of the time, unless you, like, go see Hereditary or something like that. We're being lied to, and we accept that just like we accept the lie when we go to see professional wrestling. It's all in front of us, it's all unreliable, but we ignore that. It's the unspoken contract between creator and spectator to, to let ourselves go to enjoy it. And I don't understand how no one else has ever done the film creator as magician parallel before because it works so well as, I, as I'm watching it and I'm looking for that and I don't know Nolan just gets so much stuff right man it's just it kind of blows my mind how much he nails in this one specifically 
I love watching these movies, and I love talking about these movies with you guys because you both love them the way that I love them. But today we're recording this as we put out the first episode. We put out our following episode today. Uh, so email us if you get this, cinemakers at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think, question mark. I knew that our past Cinemakers host, we even mentioned this, I think, that Tobin does not like, does not care for any Christopher Nolan movie except for Dunkirk. He loves Dunkirk, but he doesn't like any of the movies, as far as I know. Is that right, Mike? Like, I, I know he hates Dark Knight. I think he may think the following's okay, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think he thinks the following's all right. Oh, okay. Cool. Thanks, Tobin. But I almost wish that we had, like, him on these two, because, like... I want to see why people don't like something like this. You know what I mean? Because, like, to me, and, like, the way you're, like, what you guys are saying, I think we're all in agreement. Like, this is great. And I, I wish that we had someone who was like, no, it's not great because X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, I'm just totally cool just talking about, like, this movie rules. I love it. I can't believe it has been 12 years since I saw this movie. Why did I wait so long to see this movie? It's also got Batman and Wolverine and Black Widow in it. What? Like, this is, it's just, it's so cool and so good and so fun and smart. And I wish that we could be critical or more. More critical, and I know that you know in movies coming up, we're going to be we're trying to put on our critical lens. And I know you know with the Dark Knight, which is going to be next week, that it's going to be. I'm going to try my hardest to not to just like gush about that movie. And like there are things that I don't entirely love about that, but like this movie, I think I have it right now on my uh, on my rankings. It's like my number two behind only Memento, and like it might even be above that. Like this movie is just great. I'm like racking my brain. Like I have one thing in the back of my head saying why maybe this wasn't well received or even if it was it's not well remembered or well liked or whatever is that I feel like at the time when you're talking about magic and magician movies it's we're talking about Harry Potter which is also a Warner Brothers property Warner Brothers really into that magic business so maybe they were really expecting Wolverine and Batman to be flying around like wizards and you know and doing that kind of thing I'm kind of glad it's not that type of movie don't get me wrong like those movies are fun they have their place and everything, especially there's some great sort of wizard and sorcery movies from the 80s that I feel even to this day are overlooked and stuff. But I can't I can't tell you because as far as I know, you know, people love a period piece. This is the guy who just brought back Batman and, they, you know, they know he's coming back again. So I'm kind of with you. Like, I would like to get a letter or two from Tobin, maybe if he's listening, like, you know, we'll read it. And like, I'd just like to know if just about this one in particular, what it is that maybe you know, isn't isn't working for people. And what's also weird is that this is the lowest rated, on, not that I like Rotten Tomatoes, and I actively speak out against Rotten Tomatoes. I think that the system is broken. People don't know what it actually means. I don't like it. But this was, for reference sake, the lowest rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes of his. It's 76% and still comfortably fresh until Interstellar. Interstellar is a 71. So all of his movies are fresh. But this was, through the first five, his lowest rated film. Through the first, like, seven or whatever, his still his lowest rated film. And I don't know what, like, was it, like you're saying, Mike, like, were people just expecting something else? Or is there stuff that we're not seeing? Or I, I don't get it. I mean, I, I could give a shit why people don't like this movie. But I could tell you why I understand why people may not like Christopher Nolan, especially if you are um, a real film guy. You know, if you're out there on film Twitter and, uh, you know, you know how to spell Truffaut correctly, then you probably don't really like Christopher Nolan that much. And I get that aesthetically, like shot composition wise, there's not a lot there. I don't think I've seen a really interesting shot in a Christopher Nolan movie yet that wasn't just, you know, kind of CGI induced. I think he he cheats a lot, um, again, whether it, whether it's with time to manipulate emotions like he's basically throwing a punch in the first act and then you're forgetting about all of it with all this other stuff and it's landing in your jaw in the third act and 
that can be done with just clever editing and people might find some of his screenwriting and techniques you know a little too clever I think everyone who's listening to this and has, has heard us jerk him off for four episodes is going to think that we're going to do that the most in The Dark Knight, but I really don't like a lot of The Dark Knight, and I'm going to bring that up then, but his movies tend to be a little bit bloated, and they aspire to lofty themes and ideas that he often can write a good line about, but can't really pay off all the time. That said, none of that really happens in this movie other than the time manipulation, but it's a fucking movie about magicians, and it's straight up telling you it's doing that. It's saying, look over here, uh, I'm waving my hand this way, meanwhile I'm stealing your watch over here. So I think to use those arguments in this movie is maybe a little bit too on the nose, but as a whole critique of Christopher Nolan, I get it. He's easy. I bet Steven Spielberg had a lot of these criticisms laid at him in, like, 1983 as well. But, you know, there's, like we always say on uh, Now and Again, it's okay to like things, but, you know, you might also just be wrong. I understand, you know, where those people are coming from. I'm just glad I'm not one of them because um, I want to be able to just be as open as possible when it comes to film basically with art in general you know and so to just shut oneself off because of maybe oh like I didn't like this one movie a guy did so I'm not gonna ever see one of his other movies or I'm just gonna talk about rumors about him and stuff is just seems like a waste of time to me but one thing I will go on with in this is uh, I agree with you about maybe not I don't know if cinematography is right but definitely like the way his films um, have been shot for I guess since Batman and basically until maybe Interstellar or Dunkirk is that and I think he even came out at some point and said this, is um, he doesn't really have a super-duper strong respect for the shot, I feel. Like, I mean, he definitely has some interesting-looking shots and stuff, but, like, this movie is shot handheld. Uh, it's not, like, wildly handheld, but, I mean, it's it's handheld, and it's for speed, and it just doesn't seem like it's really going for that 100%. I feel like it's more about other things. I mean, there's some beautiful stuff, especially when we get to Tesla's estate, and there's some interesting shots when like Hugh Jackman standing in front of a window that makes him look like he's standing in front of a cage and you know the bird in the cage metaphor throughout and everything but yeah I agree I I, I feel like that is maybe like the weakest element going around here which in an, again isn't that it's like terrible or anything like it's that is the weakest thing and how strong it is is still a testament I feel to his process and, and his way of filmmaking. But I, I think it's just good for speed is to shoot handheld like this, and he shoots handheld well. It's almost just like someone standing in place with the camera as opposed to, like, shaking it uncontrollably as you usually get. I do want to point out that I know that I've heard that criticism of that there's not really necessarily interesting shots, that there's – I think it might even been Nick Jenkins on this very podcast network on Real Bad talking about how, like, you don't need every shot to be lit exactly perfectly with, like, no shadows anywhere, something to that effect. But this movie was nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Art Direction, which is a little bit different, but neither of those won at the Academy Awards, but it was nominated for both of those. So, like, this is a beautiful-looking movie. It is, you know, period-appropriate. I, I like the handheld. The, it sort of feels, like, dirty in a way, and I don't know if you use that word, Mike, but, like, they're not, like, huge magicians like I guess Hugh Jackman's kind of a bigger magician but like Christian Bale's just sort of like this like kind of like upstart guy like it would almost feel like disingenuous if it was this like really glitzy glossy shot film which I guess it kind of is but it feels more true to them and to the nature of their magic to do it in a handheld way I think yeah there's a sense of urgency that I get from 
the uh, the pace of it and the way it's shot and also like they you know there's a whole thing throughout this where you know they always talk about uh, are you ready to get your hands dirty and there is like a down and dirty way when you get down to handheld that sort of translates on just sort of like a subconscious level I guess there is it, you know as sort of polished as the rest of the film is it, it's an interesting contrast to everything else going on that they're shooting handheld to me. Let's talk about Nikola Tesla, which you mentioned his estate before. Let's talk about the fact that he's played by David Bowie. And let's also talk about the fact that uh, someone I follow on Letterboxd said, imagine if Nikola Tesla was played by Prince, and now I can't stop thinking about a world in which Nikola Tesla is played by Prince in this movie, and I want that so bad. I thought he had kind of a older Pierce Brosnan look to him now that I saw him. Like, if you've seen Pierce lately... <laughs> It's so great because Bowie, you know, in life was so enigmatic and Tesla in his day was just, you know, I couldn't imagine what people were saying about him. I mean, there's just, there's no media like there is today, but yet he was world renowned and his rivalry with Edison that sort of parallels the magician's rivalry in the movie. And it's just such an interesting and awesome element to put in here and grounds it a little more in the real world while keeping it open and fantastical and open into new possibilities. You just don't know where this film can go. I like Bowie as Tesla here. I think it's another place where this movie cheats, and if there is a a complaint to be had about it, it could be here. Um, I know that this was Melissa's big complaint about this movie because she is she's she's expecting something that can be solved, and I don't blame her. The movie does kind of set that up, but and then it just kind of it kind of implies that like Tesla is is a real wizard, and it's it's a little silly. I don't know if there's enough of the movie to. To make it not silly, um, like for example, some of the stuff that's ridiculous in the Batman movies works because it's superheroes, it's it's dudes in, in spandex. Even though he's trying to make it grounded and serious, it's still dudes in leather punching each other. Here, the movie is like largely grounded in real life. This isn't Now You See Me, but then all of a sudden it's like, no, no, guys, Nikola Tesla like is like a god person. So while it works for me that from a casting perspective... I do think it is, and this is from the source material as well, um, the, the novel this is based on apparently. It's weird. It's weird. It's, it feels like something that belongs in a different movie, basically. And I feel bad for Tesla, and I do agree. The Edison-Tesla stuff is a great parallel. I really like that, actually. And if you know if you know about Tesla, you know that he got absolutely screwed by Thomas Edison and his entire life up until, a, you know, a couple of years ago in his rediscovery before another billionaire cunt puts his name on some shitty cars that catch fire and are built in sweatshops. Like, Tesla's whole story is really fascinating and fuck me, now I just want to see Bowie as Tesla and Prince as Thomas Edison in a, in a dueling scientists electrocuting elephants movie. But I, li- I like this more calm and understated than what Prince would have done. It's tough, you know, because like you say, up until this point, everything is very grounded for the most part, you know, like even the magic tricks, we're learning how to do those and the bullet trick. Everything is like, here's the realness. It's real, 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 real. And then we get to Tesla. And for a second, it's almost like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen version of Tesla, right? We're just going to bump into fictionalized versions of historical figures throughout our journey. And they're going to actually have like powers and stuff. Personally, I love it because the movie starts to reveal itself as something more. By the end of this movie, I think this movie is more of a science fiction film than anything else. Like, this feels like sci-fi, and Tesla helps sell that. And so when we actually get the Transporting Man clone machine 
it turns out to be, you know, he's actually cloning himself over and over again. For me, I loved it, and it was just like, you know, chef kiss into the air when I'm sitting here for like whatever the fifth or sixth time watching it. Oh, you chef kiss into the air too. I got that from Chris too. I, I like that we're all chef kissing <laughs> into the air over here. So just let's talk about the movie itself for a little bit, at least. So the movie follows two different magicians around, follows Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. And I think intentionally so, it seems to blur the lines between their acts and their lives and like who Scarlett Johansson is with. They both are competing. They both have different tricks. They're both working with doubles, sort of, in a way, or they're interested in the idea of doubles. The big trick that each of them has is the disappearing man, in which essentially they walk into a thing on one side of the stage and instantly walk out on the other side of the stage. Christian Bale develops it first because, spoiler alert for the end of the movie, he has a twin brother and they've been living the life as one guy. And meanwhile, Hugh Jackman is trying to figure out how he's doing it. They're like, oh, he's a double, like Chris was saying before. Oh, it's a double. And he's like, no, 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 it can't be that simple. There's got to be something more. It's actually magic. And drives them both to lunacy to basically ruin everything in both their lives. Leads to one of Christian Bale's deaths. Leads to many Hugh Jackman deaths. <laughs> It's a very, I think, simple story that has a lot of different twists and turns. And I think the biggest theme, as Mike was saying, I think, at the very top of the show, is that theme of obsession. Like, they both have women in their lives who love them, and yet they care only about beating the other. And it doesn't even feel necessarily like the glory. Like, I think the glory is part of it, but it feels like, no, 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 I just need to be better than him because look what he did to me. And it's like that obsession that really drives them both to just have miserable lives by the end. ScarJo even says to Hugh Jackman at one point, doing this won't bring your wife back. And he's like, it's not even about her anymore. It's all about the trick, you know? So yeah, it's they, they each spiral into madness at one point. Um, one of my favorite aspects, though, of their relationship is that they start out friends or at least as colleagues like they're running the same act with Ricky Jay the magician you know where they put Piper Parable into the water box and Borman Christian Bale, he like takes turns tying the knots and stuff. He's always like, oh, you got to push it, push it, push it. And and that's really interesting, too, is that, they're you know, it's 1897. It's right at the turn of the century. And so, you know, these are like men of the future. And it's really cool how they're setting that up from the beginning. They, they both have these different ideologies and ways of seeing the world, but they're also very much both forward-thinking, prescient type of people who can see a different side of society or whatever and just find the next thing that is going to be like a sensation. But we don't know this at this point is that Christian Bale is already two people playing one life here. He's already brothers. So, you know, only one of them had that argument backstage and isn't aware of the switch nod. And so that whole aspect is really interesting too. But but I think my favorite moment that sort of defines them is when they go see uh, Chun-Li Su, the, the Chinese magician. Christian Bale's like, this is the trick. Being an old man the whole time your entire life in public is the trick. Not what you do on stage, but that. And and Hugh Jackman explaining to his wife, like, he saw it right away. I still can't even fathom it. It's beyond my comprehension. And, and like, that is ultimately why he won't be the last man standing. But yeah, I just love the volley of their relationship and their rivalry. And it's just so much fun to watch them one-up each other. I specifically want to call out one of the scenes that you mentioned where Scott Johansson does say, this won't bring your wife back, and Jackman says, I don't care about my wife. He does have this little moment of, like, realizing he said that before he moves on. Um, and after that scene in the movie, um, as, as I was watching it with Melissa, who had never seen it before, she kind of says, before we get to the very ending, she says out loud, who's the bad guy in this movie? And I think that's a great question, because I feel like that exact scene is the tipping point, where 
It goes from Christian Bale being the more unlikable of the two. It might even be the scene where he shoots off his fingers, but that's almost understandable in some way if he really believes that he killed his wife. Um, but I do believe that that is the moment where Hugh Jackman becomes irredeemable, and it is no longer about the wife. It's just personal pride, and that is in the end what leads to his downfall. I guess it's always kind of been personal, but once it becomes as vindictive as, like, stealing somebody's daughter because you feel that you couldn't have that life yourself. Like, he goes crazy, essentially. As subtle as it's been, he does go crazy supervillain. And that, I think, is the exact moment, and I'm glad you brought it up because it is such a pivotal moment in the film. And by the end, I do really think you, you are meant to side with Borden. That's another misdirection, the shift from him being kind of cocky and arrogant at the beginning to identifying with him at the end. Just another way that Nolan manipulates your emotions throughout. And I think a smart thing that the movie does in terms of the manipulation of like who these characters are and who you're supposed to root for or not is that from the jump, basically, uh, Rebecca Hall plays Christian Bale's wife, who he meets because she's the aunt of that little boy. From the beginning of their relationship, she's like, you don't love me every day and I'm okay with that because sometimes you really mean it and sometimes you don't. And you're like, oh, wow, like Christian Bale is kind of an asshole. Like he cares so much about his match that he doesn't love his wife. But then we find out later, no, 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 one of the brothers truly loves her and the other one's just playing the part. And so I think the movie is really smart in how it portrays, like you were saying, Chris, at the beginning, Christian Bale as the bad guy. But then as time goes on, you see that he sort of becomes a little bit more understandable and empathetic and sort of also seems wrongly accused. And even though you don't necessarily know the exact timeline of things, it feels like there's probably more, like, no movie, I don't think, even out of order, is going to kill Hugh Jackman like 20 minutes in. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like there's more to it. So in your brain, you're sort of like, oh, he must have been like, there's more to this. Maybe he was wrongly accused or whatever. And then as time goes on, the more Hugh Jackman becomes obsessed, the more it becomes clear that he is the true monster of this film and Christian Bale might not be the hero, but is actually at least more understandable than he comes off being at the beginning of the movie. That Sarah character is super interesting. Like, she's on to him from the start, right? Like, she knows something's up, but she can't ever quite put her finger on it, which is super tragic because ultimately she succumbs to her own madness and hangs herself, which played so powerfully this time, too, just in the workshop. I, I forgot that she had did that in his workshop. But watching this again, it's like I almost wondered if Freddy, if the Freddy brothers, like, one was sort of a good brother and one was an evil brother because I feel like the one that's survives is the one that loved Sarah and then so that's his child. So I feel like in a way all the sort of bad stuff that Christian Bale's character ended up doing is almost by virtue of the brother who never fell in love or the one who ended up falling in love with ScarJo and then couldn't have that. Ultimately it's even he's off the hook because he takes the fall for all the bad things that they do. So by the end, when you find out that uh, Angier is actually Lord Caldwell, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, like even with a name like Lord Caldwell, like this guy is is villainous and evil, and you know he, he reappears with like a devil goatee, the way that the professor used to wear it as a gag as theater. But like, no, this is my true face, and just great misdirection, like up until the end, that working on not just the level of the characters, but even the audience. And that's something I missed on this again um, through watching it partially through someone else's eyes. I was asked when the Lord Caldwell character has been revealed, and this was like, wait, is, has he always been Lord Caldwell? Or is this just a new persona he made now? And I had forgotten that. They actually set that up at the first 10 minutes of this movie. When he's in bed talking to his wife, Piper Parabo, she says something, and he says, well, you know, I my name is this because I don't want to embarrass my family with my magic. They do set that up which I think is just another testament to Nolan's very meticulous attention to detail in his script. 
I just picked this up and this was like several viewings in. In the beginning, when Christian Bale's in prison and Lord Caldwell's like lawyer shows up or whatever, his estate attorney, he, he actually kind of looks a little like Hugh Jackman. Like it's almost a doppelganger there. Like I feel like that is an intentional play. I would like to say my favorite Hugh Jackman performance in this movie is the extremely toothy, drunk, Shakespearean failed actor who he uses as a double. I love Hugh Jackman as that. It's such a non- Jackman character and it's wonderful and I wish he would do more goofy comedy honestly. I'm so glad that he played the double that they didn't dress up someone who wasn't him. I don't know that just gets such a delight like there's not a lot of outright comedy in this film even though there's little moments that make you go like oh yeah that's that's clever or that's like whatever but like yeah when he's on the scene it's fantastic and it's just come on Nolan do some more comedy like let it out get it out of your system I mean I'm not saying you have to do a Christopher Guest type movie but like I believe in you I think you got a full 90 minute comedy in you who would be in the Christopher Nolan comedy? I guess Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, what do we do? We, we recast Memento, right, in, in modern days? Like, I mean, if we were casting a Christopher Nolan comedy with the actors only in his universe to use Chris's rules, I mean, Hugh Jackman would be in there. I think Leo would be in there. Who else? I think Tom Hardy. I'm sure he's got some song and dance we haven't seen yet. Okay. I think this movie is hipster couple Anne Hathaway and Joseph Gordon-Levitt delivering their grandpa, Michael Caine, to somewhere across the country. It's a kind of a road trip thing. And Hugh Jackman is involved in some way as the antagonist. Into it. Maybe Joseph Gordon-Levitt took Anne Hathaway from, like, Hugh Jackman could be her dad. And it's sort of like a remake of one of those old Ron Howard movies where it's just like constant car crashes and stuff until they get to uh, Reno. I uh, I love all of this. You know what revelation I had during this? Because this this was such a meta movie and I was watching it from that perspective kind of. I just imagine in those scenes where Fallon, when we don't know who Fallon is, and and uh, and Borden are like just fucking yelling, at, well mostly Borden yelling at Fallon, but just yelling at each other, like trying to get it right. Like, why can't you see this? Why can't we figure this out? I just feel like so many of the conversations came straight from like the Nolan Brothers real life diaries. Like, I can just feel that being them trying to figure out Memento is feeling like, why can't you figure out what Lenny does here, buddy? Come on. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, I didn't really consider their relationship being a play on the brothers Noland as well. Just the idea that one of them is always out there, his face is on everything, and he's the main guy that we all see, and the other one is sort of playing the background, writing all the time, never really sharing in the prestige so much, but yeah, it's cool that it, it's in there. Um, I also love the, the Borden-Fallon thing, because the first time I was not paying attention to uh, Fallon, like, at all, like, I was just like, oh, he's just got, like, a guy who's representing him, and I never expected him to return sort of to the movie and then he's just sort of peppered throughout until by the end you're like what is up with this guy and then it's sort of too late when the reveal comes it's you know you're a step behind when it's revealed in that awesome montage and they're like cutting off Christian Bale's other two fingers and so that whole thing is just really great can we talk about how Christian Bale plays somebody named Alfred <laughs> like it's Alfred it's not I mean Michael Caine is in this movie is Michael Caine's full name Bruce Cutter uh, yes, Bruce Batman Cutter for his wrestler stage name. Because, like, you guys are saying last names, but, like, as soon as I found out, as soon as I remembered that Christian Bale was named Alfred, I was like, oh, no, no, no. I don't care about actor names anymore. All I care about is Batman and Wolverine or Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman because, like, my brain can't process the fact that, like, there's Batman in this movie and Batman is played by a guy named Alfred and Alfred's in the movie. Like, it just, it just, it was, it was like mindfuckery of a different level. Like, I wasn't, I couldn't process that in my, my little brain. I'm not sure I ever realized what his 
name is other than Borden or the professor until the moment where Scarlet uses that at dinner as like a pet name. I don't know if that's intentional, but that is a good moment where you're like, wait, did, did I even know that that was his name? Because it comes off in just like this cutesy, like not meant to be aggressive, but aggressive way. And I think if that's the one thing you can really say is villainous about the Bordens is it is is not the accidental death because I don't think he is really to blame for Piper Parabo's death. Uh, it really is how they treat their women. Like that is monumentally fucked up and directly leads to one of their deaths. And the other one just walks to the edge of movie town and you know she hits the city limits and is gone, which I think is a dropped plot point that could have used another scene in a movie that's already two hours and ten minutes long. Just fucking do something with her. It is fucked up. And the movie, I think because so much is happening at the end and we're getting so close to the prestige and everything is unraveling, there's really not a lot of time to process the magnitude of the wife killing herself because of their duplicity, deception, both. I really like that. It really feels like part of the cost they weren't expecting to pay, or at least a part of it that they didn't think that it would be so devastating. I get the sense that they truly felt that they could pull this off without hurting anybody. Like, if no one knows, then what's the harm? But he ends up, if you don't know, and like the first time you're watching this, and when, especially the scene when when he's rescued from being buried alive by his brother and he shows up at dinner and you're like okay he's lost it like it's like a touch of madness or but then you know that he was actually the one buried alive maybe one of them shouldn't have shown up to dinner that night but that's not the point of the scene like the point of the scene is what is most important to everybody what are your priorities at this point and right now all he's thinking of after that is revenge I don't know if he ever quite realizes that like his family's in jeopardy that all their lives can be at stake too and that we do have Hugh Jackman sort of plotting like he has my family he has my life like this is what I had he stole it from me like this dude is you're right like he is the bad guy the more you think about it because he is actively starting this rivalry and won't let it go and so by the end it's going to take everything from him. I think, Mike, to answer your question quickly, when in doubt, does he realize X, Y, or Z? I think neither of them realize anything in this movie other than I need to one-up him. Like, I don't think Christian Bale for a second realizes that Hugh Jackman could, like, mess with his family. Like, I don't think he either realizes or doesn't care. Like, he's just so blindsided. They both are by one-upping each other that they don't realize that the literal safety of those around them, like, it almost feels like they don't mind if they die, but, like, they don't even think that, like, he could kill his wife. It just feels like it's, it's beyond his, not comprehension, but just, like, beyond, like, what he's thinking about. I would take that beyond him and say, I think the movie shows that the moral high ground, I guess, in this movie lies with Michael Caine. The judge goes to him and says, you know, I trust you. Can you explain this to me? In the one scene that does not involve either Borden or Angiers in, in this entire movie is the scene between the judge and Michael Caine. Michael Caine to me does seem like the arbiter of morality in this movie. And he is there when they bury Borden to alive. He fucking puts him in that coffin like he's the Undertaker in a fucking coffin match at WrestleMania. He nails him into that fucking thing, um, which is mind-blowing because he, I don't even think, realizes that this is more than just a professional duel. Like, the moment at the end, he sides with Borden. He gives Angiers up to Borden, and the moment that that happens is when the daughter comes into play. And if the audience has not realized the moment that Jackman says, I don't care about my wife, that he has become the villain, that is the moment when it becomes very clear. And if there's an audience surrogate, it's probably also Michael Caine in some ways. Like, as the moral arbiter there, like, he flips. He, he turns face at that moment as well. And and that is a major, major turning point in the morality of this movie as well. You could you could even say that they are both really 
trashed people up until that point in a lot of ways if you follow the Michael Caine as the moral high ground, which seems to be the case in like all of Christopher Nolan's movies. He acts as that kind of figure of what is good and what is not. I just like to point out, um, I pointed this out in Insomnia, how it's very muted tones until they want to highlight some stuff, and he brings back the the light the light blue water as contrast to the rest of the world, and also Scarlett Johansson's clothing, or I guess both of the um, magician's assistants' clothing is is bright gold and with like some like red and reds and greens, which we don't get throughout the rest of the movie to really make them stand out. And the Tesla electricity stands out in that same way. Yeah, that looks that looks like something that real Wolverine would have got blasted with in in X Men. Yeah, the Tesla stuff, like the mountain and the mist, like, again, I'm just like, it's all sort of like that classic 40s universal horror stuff in my mind, like coming to light here. And Tesla's vibe fits perfectly with the alternating current and all that kind of imagery as you always saw that in like Frankenstein's lab. You know, he doesn't even really lean into it as hard as he could. And it's just little touches and he just knows how to paint it right in this way and stuff. And so, yeah, I was definitely picking up on the different vibes that the different environments we're giving off this time. I was trying to be conscious of that, and it's certainly coming through. There's almost like domains, like London, and it's mostly, yeah, like very, it's very sort of brown and almost sepia at times, just by virtue of lighting of the period and the worn hundreds and hundreds of bills posted onto the poles and everything like that. It just also having like the more affluent citizens have like the nice colors on their clothes that pop against that is just like really nice to watch in return so that's just so great how much detail was put into this and that visually how uh, enticing it is it's just it's really nice and rewarding I love your pickup of the gothicness, the gothic horror aspect of um, of Tesla's lab. I missed that, but like it's completely there. I felt like him going to that hotel up in the mountains of Colorado and being like the first one to check in. I got some like real shining vibes out of that for some reason. Like, what do you mean, Mr. Andrews? You've, you've always been here. I loved that. And again, the time jumps also fucked with me a little bit. Yeah. Does he ever interact with anybody from the main cast in America? Or is he there alone the entire time? Who's he? Oh, sorry, uh, Angiers. Oh, okay. I believe he's alone the entire time, yeah. Okay. When those little cards on, at the bottom of the pint glass happen, those both occur in London, right? Yeah. Okay, just checking. Like I said, there's a, a couple of points where the time distortion and non-chronological Nolan shit also fucked with the, how I was interpreting the movie as well. So I just, just clarifying that, I'm glad everyone was listening to me not understand this movie like a real good movie watcher. I don't think it's intentionally confusing, but it's intentionally not clear. So I don't think that there's reason, like, you shouldn't be, like, ashamed or embarrassed that you couldn't follow, because, like I said, there's 146 jumps in time in this movie. And the fact that, like, you maybe lose thread, like you were saying, like we were talking about, like, where Scarlett Johansson just sort of rides off into the sunset, sort of unseen, or, like, you can't exactly follow when things are, or who people are talking to, or where it is. I don't know that it's necessarily intentional that you can't follow that, but like I was saying, you know, it's intentional that it's not laying everything out from A to Z, like point one to two to three to four to five, all linear, because that wouldn't benefit this movie. I don't think that the time jumps are as essential to the type of story as they are to Memento, but I think that they are essential to the type of movie that this is. Like, I think, in theory, you could tell a story in a linear way, I just don't think it would be interesting. I think it would be more interesting maybe than Memento. Actually, I don't know. I might be talking myself out of the point that I'm making as I keep talking. I guess that's a question for you guys. What would be more interesting, this or Memento, if they were in order? I think this, but sort of barely. Or, I don't know. I think maybe, I think it's definitely this. I just don't know how much this. Yeah, I think it's this, but 
hardly. Really? Okay. It's still going to be disjointed and we're still going to have a lot of time jumps. I don't think it's as reliant on its reveals as uh, Memento is, but I also don't think it's designed to be watched in sequence. And this again, you know, I think Chris sort of offhandedly mentioned it before. Well, this is based on a novel. And so we were we were reading the Wikipedia summary before, and the way that the wiki summary is written, it seems like it just like reveals that there's like twin brothers up front, but I don't I can't imagine that's the case. I think it's whatever I would imagine that the book sort of follows the narrative structure of this, that they are they sort of you know, it's told out of order that it's there's like this reveal at the end. Because I feel like if you know what's coming from the beginning, if you know those brothers, none of this is interesting. Like or none of this is as interesting at least. Right, and that's something you'll lose if you tell it in order because you got to show Freddy cutting off Alfred's fingers and stuff like that. So I have not read the book. I heard that it's quite different than this. I don't know, something about relatives in the modern day finding these diaries through an estate sale or something. I'm not sure if that's accurate, if that was in Wikipedia or anything. The author of the book's on a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, so he seems to approve highly of what happened. I don't know who would not approve of this, even if it's miles from the source material. So I don't know if either of you read this, but when this book first came out, I think in 1995, Sam Mendes, who did American Beauty, wanted to do this movie as a follow-up to American Beauty. And so he was apparently talking to the, the author, Christopher Priest, and then all of a sudden at the end, or sort of near the end of like their negotiation or whatever, this VHS tape showed up. This like submission came from someone he had never heard of, Christopher Nolan, and he wasn't sure, and then he got a VHS copy of Following, because that was when Memento was still being made, and the guy was impressed by the movie and wanted to give this young upstart filmmaker uh, a break because like Sam Mendes obviously take it for what it is after the fact hashtag problematic or whatever American Beauty was huge at the time and like he didn't need any help getting to the next step like he could probably do whatever project he wanted to do so I think it's cool that this guy was like oh I like this director Christopher Nolan I'm gonna let him do my movie and then by the time the movie comes out the guy is making Batman like you know what I mean like it's just it's weird how the world works but I think it's also cool that like it worked out the way that it did can I hijack this conversation briefly because I don't want to leave without talking about something that we will never have a chance to talk about on this show again, but needs to be discussed in the context of this movie. Because we were talking about how cool it would be to see Christopher Nolan do other genres, and it would. And apparently in my in my research I learned that Inception started as a horror movie. Oh. But I don't think we will ever get, maybe, maybe in Dunkirk, I haven't seen it, war movies can sometimes be very much in line with horror movies, but I don't know if we will ever get something as deeply disturbing... I imagine this is in the book as well, because that's what made me remember to, to talk about it. I imagine the book can explore this philosophy much better than a film can, especially because Nolan doesn't really do big ideas especially well, um, or at least big themes especially well. The existential horror of cloning yourself seemingly as a perfect copy that has all of your memories and knowledge already, and then murdering it repeatedly, and not just murdering it repeatedly, seemingly murdering the original clone a couple of the times because the person who goes into the box is the one that's dying. Thinking about that for more than a couple of minutes is existentially fucking war. It's warfare on your brain. It is a nightmare. It's horrifying. And it goes with his the whole, like, what is it to be a person? Yeah, the existential horror of cloning yourself repeatedly, murdering it, or allowing yourself to be murdered, but knowing that your clone will have all of your thoughts and ideas. That means Angiers has completely, like, abandoned any kind of thought of spirit or soul or anything like that and just accepts that he only exists as particles and molecules mashed together in that specific way just that when you think about it for more than a couple of minutes is just existential dread inducing in an overwhelming way that i don't think nolan has or will ever do again 
the thing that it makes me think of is just self-hatred. Yes. Just killing yourself over and over again, like can't stand the sight of yourself and what you because you're a fraud or whatever. And that fits perfectly in theme with the success of this magician and what might be going on through neuroses that we're not seeing, but we are metaphorically through the murder of his clones night after night. I think that's why he installed the trap doors so the one that survives can't do anything about it. My whole thing was he didn't have the sense to just use the machine once and be a twin because he right. could do all the same shit even better because he's a better showman and that is also the one red herring that gets me every time or I don't even know if it's a red herring but I have in my head halfway through the movie that Christian Bale went through the machine once and thought of that and was like I'll destroy it after I use it once but then we come to find out that Tesla's kind of just like a red herring and who ends up actually working which is kind of cool too is that Tesla calls the movies bluff in a way and is like no I can make this machine and make it work and everything but that is very horrifying indeed I, I'm right there with you and there's the really depressing speech that he even has if I'm getting the context of it right where he's like saying about how I don't know if I'm going to be the one in that box or I'm going to be the one with the prestige right and like he's just like I don't know when I clone myself where I'm going to be and it's just like how do you live with that and Michael Caine, who, when he wanted to console him, when Hugh Jackman was still a face, when he says, you know, I was in the war and someone who, someone drowned, but then was brought back to life. And they said it was fine. It was like going home. And at the very end, he clearly knows what's going on. He says, yeah, I lied. That story was bullshit. The guy said it was absolute agony. It's just, it's horrifying. And it's it's interesting, that, as, as Mike pointed out, what he says, never, never known that, because Jackman's whole thing and his inability to see it so simple as just having two people doing the act, and Bale says, because he asked Bale, which one of you came out for the audience? He says, we switched. Because this whole thing was never wanting to be the guy in the box. No one cares about the man in the box. He wants to be the one taking in the praise. He needs to be the one who gets the adulation. And he's so committed to that, and he so believes, he's so solipsistic, that he only believes that he exists, no matter which version of the him it is, that he will allow himself to be killed so that he himself can get that adulation, even though that the same memories aren't there, and, and the same knowledge and the same experiences. It's just, it's the idea of copying someone so perfectly and still being that, it's it ties into identity so well. And if we're saying that identity is a theme of Nolan throughout these movies, this is the most horrifying way of viewing that. It's so not Nolan-y that I, I love it. And I think it's the main thing that really pushes this movie to another stratosphere, just even in Nolan's filmography. Yeah, it's really interesting that he was able to slip that in here on that level. And it kind of goes back to something I think Joey was saying way back, just about how he has a good way of sort of explaining deep philosophies in easy ways, or at least in ways that audiences can understand in the moment, at least. And yeah, I think that also is sort of at play here, too, just the concept of taking these macro ideas that people have been discussing for decades and centuries or whatever, and he's boiling it all down to moments, and they're working I'm just thinking when he's killing all these people, like, how fucking financially irresponsible is it to have to build a case of water to kill yourself every night and not reuse that case of water just to keep all your dead bodies around? Like, you're paying for storage fees, you're paying for building fees, you're paying for the water, you're paying for the cool lighting so that we can see all the dead bodies, like... The blind stagehands? You can hand them a single and say it's 100, to be fair. The only thing I thought of was that he chose the water cage because it was symbolic of his wife's death and that, you know, he was just so clearly insane at that point. Like, why not make it all about that? <laughs> you know, share in that. Like, she can't even be the one to drown to death. Like, he has to know what that's like, too. So uh, I just saw it as, like, pure obsession. <laughs> 
Now that I'm thinking about it, you could just clone a stack of money and you just have all the money you want. Yeah, it's not about the money, though, apparently. I mean, it's about the look on their face, right? I mean, uh, that's was that's like almost his final words, too, and something that I guess... Christian Bale, what? I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like Freddy and Alfred, you know, I feel like they did it for the prestige. Like, I feel like they knew what they were doing it for, but there's also that very interesting moment towards the end when they're arguing with each other. I think Chris brought up this scene earlier. They're sort of, they've seen the new transported man after Hugh Jackman started cloning himself, and they're arguing with each other, and one of the Freddies is just like, we don't need to know. Leave him alone. Never go back there. Just call it off. And then the other Freddy can't leave it alone. Like, he has to go back there. Like, he just needs to know the secret so it's just even more tragic that like they almost got away with it but one of them couldn't help themselves like one of them really fell for almost in as deep as Hugh Jackman is at that point you know that like the Freddy that lost Sarah has lost something and can't continue but the other one is still in the game and and wants to know the truth it's a good thing he never thought to put his dead wife in it or could have gotten a real 1897 pet cemetery situation going on that's some Cronenberg shit right there he goes into the machine and a fly flies in one day and it's just, you know, we're in a Cronenberg movie now. And Jeff Goldblum is Nikola Tesla. I love it. Electricity, uh, uh, uh finds a way. I'm a, uh, I'm a, an agent of chaos. Uh, uh. Okay, new game for Cinemakers. Aside from recasting Modern Day or whatever, what role would Jeff Goldblum be the best? So obviously for this one, Tesla, and I guess for The Dark Knight would be the Joker. Okay. Two things. Number one, when one of the Christian Bales gets hanged at the end, his last word, I had to rewind it because I couldn't catch it. His last word is abracadabra, which is a fucking badass way to go out. Like, that's so cool. But number two, what I did not realize until I looked on IMDb was that the main character's initials, Alfred Borden and Robert Angier, spell abra, A-B-R-A, abra. So there we go. Was anyone else getting sort of a monolith thing Ooh. from the uh, the box that the machine is kept in? Like, I definitely was like, oh, that's like a steampunk monolith because it's made of wood instead of whatever, carbon or who knows, otherworldly materials. But yeah, I just was like, yeah, because it contained sort of the mysteries of reality and the universe and unfathomable horrors and all kinds of things inside that box. In that scene where the guy brings Michael Caine to the box, like at the end, I absolutely can see that 100%. But I was I was really getting those Cronenberg fly vibes from it a lot, too. Oh, yeah, I can see that. The pod. I was going to say this earlier when, when, Mike, you were talking about Chung Ling Su. He was actually a stage character created by a Caucasian-American man, William Ellsworth Robinson, who disguised himself as a Chinese man to cash in on audiences' enthusiasm for the exotic. Oh, so that's like another Tesla yep. situation yep. where we have a real life. Oh, I'm surprised Houdini didn't make an appearance, like a young 23-year-old Houdini, like, walking down the street. <laughs> We think it's so bonkers to have this idea of, like, I'm creating this whole character and I live this character so that it works for my magic. But I mean, like, yes, I guess you could point out, like, Chris Angel Mindfreak and be like, hey, look at that member of Korn is doing magic. But, like, Teller has never spoken, like, in public, really. Like, he's been doing that for almost 30 years at this point. I'm sure there's some instances where people have, you know, caught him speaking and stuff like that. But he's been the silent guy in that act for 30 fucking years. Like, that's got to be pretty tough. Like, this kind of shit is still happening for the art today. It's like the one profession or vocation where, like, commitment to the bit is paramount. It's ultimate. It's like the one thing you can't, you can't 
ever be off almost like even Penn Jillette you know what I'm saying like I'm sure a lot of that boisterousness and stuff started as part of the act to pick up for the fact that he's the only one talking and now if you like listen to I love his interviews and stuff but if you listen to him like the guy is a motor mouth and stuff so you almost become part and I mean that was even true sure for Houdini like people just could not draw the line between the man and the myth it's one of the uh, pitfalls I guess of because I mean back then you know you got to think about it like it's before movies there's no movie stars to get crazy about like magicians were probably it like the tops like them and musicians so like magicians musicians and whatever else starts with an M back then if you're into sculling back in America baseball is <laughs> about to hit but well, you know <laughs> 1897 the biggest film star is the train that everyone in the audience jumped away from when they thought it was coming through the screen yeah, those people walking out of a factory at the Lumiere Brothers factory. Yeah, and you know what else? Not just magic. Um, I brought this up before as a joke, but wrestling also is really one of the other, maybe not so much today, but going even into the 80s, that was one of the professions where you had to live that character in public to sell yourself. Like, Ric Flair lived the nature boy. A lot of wrestlers, if, if like they were at a bar and someone was like, hey man, wrestling's fake, you're not so tough, they would have to fucking fight them and win to show that that is what they were, like they were real tough guys. And it's interesting that those both have roots back to vaudeville and the early 1900s. And they're, it's just, it's still such like kind of this weird carny industry that's just blown up so much into the mainstream. And you go back to those roots and it's, it's, it's that. It's pretty, it's pretty cool, actually, how, how those, that, that all kind of comes together. But wait, I have more about Chung Ling Su. Oh, shit. You guys just kept talking. I didn't want to interrupt your great conversation, but I'm only halfway through my Chung Ling Su paragraph. Oh, fuck. So, he died in March 1918 when a bullet catch trick went wrong. He said, my God, I've been shot, which were both his last words and the first English he ever spoke on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. Also want to point out, did I not point out yet, that the song over the closing credits is a Tom York song, so thank you very much. Yes, please. Love this movie even more. Forgot that Analyze was in this movie, but yup. Is there any cool stuff about initial, like, casting, like, almost had these people as the dueling wizards? The only one I have was that the Robert Angier part, the Hugh Jackman role, was almost Josh Hartnett, which, no. Major, major bullet dodge there. Speak Talking about... Catching, bullets. <laughs> Catching a bullet. There's a dodge in a bullet. Yeah. Uh, I do want to say, oh, the, the only other thing, like, in terms of quote-unquote casting was that the infant, you know, Freddie's infant was played by one of Christopher Nolan's children, so getting around those labor laws. Well, something that just fascinates me, thinking about, you know, who could have been in this movie, is Nolan reuses people so frequently. It just, it, it always intrigues me when someone's a one-and-done in the Nolan-verse. So this one has both... Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson in major roles who are both one and dones and that's it's just they're both so good and I mean Scarlett Johansson doesn't do a lot honestly I like Scarlett Johansson I think a lot of people could have played this role frankly but I'm surprised Jackman hasn't been back I think he could have fit really well in Inception Interstellar it always makes me wonder what happened or, or why. Maybe it's just because Hugh Jackman's so big. I think what happened is that they both went on and made like four more Marvel movies in the time that Christopher Nolan made four movies. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they have other things going on. I mean, we never know like what the behind the scenes are of, you know, why people are or not asked back or whatever but like I, I agree with you like I'd like to see them both back because I like both of them a lot as actors but I also think that they're just incredibly busy and you know it's not like Christopher Nolan makes a ton of movies it's not like Soderbergh where we did like 30 things or whatever Christopher Nolan in 20 years has 10 movies which is still a good turnout especially considering how big they are but like at the same time it's not like he has like ample opportunities to cast these people I still haven't seen Logan I really need to do that you should yeah, it's great. I think that's all the notes that I have about the prestige. Anything else you guys want to say before we close up shop and then we come back next week for The Dark Knight? 
it does a lot more, I think, than the usual Nolan stuff, where the usual Nolan stuff is you see some cool shit and it makes you have some feels. This goes a little bit beyond that, as does Memento as well. The whole idea of, like, how many times has Lenny done that, that horror, kind of pokes its head back again here with how many times has Angier's done that. And I think that little bit of something more is what pushes those two movies up above the rest of the Nolan movies so far for me and I've, I've gone a little bit ahead and even above those as well um, as the two that really stand out for me as because you know, deep down you could be objective and subjective but there's always going to be some of you and what you are looking for in, in your opinions and I, I think those are really what pushes Memento and The Prestige above the rest of his films for me as the ones that really get to the heart of the questions that I lie awake at night sometimes and ask myself and that's you know, I, I like being confronted with that in my art. So there you go. I think that's that's it for me. Tune in for the Dark Knight for me suddenly having some hot takes. Ooh, it's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight. Sorry, wrong Batman movie. This podcast needs an enema. <laughs> I guess closing remarks for the prestige before we take our bow. Yeah, you know, I just think it's remarkable for the size and scope of this film, just how intensely personal it comes across. Like, personal from, like, I feel like I understand Christopher Nolan better now, and also personal into, like, it, it is very sort of self-reflective if you want it to be. Like, it can make you sort of take a look at yourself, because we have two clear-cut characters with dueling ideologies and methods here trying to accomplish the same goal and i just think that we can find ourselves in a part of the of a part of either of them not entirely but like yeah like it makes you sort of like look at yourself a little more and like if you want to like i think ultimately this movie is just trying to entertain and be a big spectacle and it's it's just this huge magic trick and it's and it's wonderful but there's definitely more to it than just that there's a lot under the surface here and Nolan has done a great job of making it extremely accessible and I give him a lot of credit for that and I understand if some people think that yeah maybe he is using too many shortcuts or too many techniques or whatever but I just think with Memento he's found a better sort of combination of his sensibilities and his filmmaking aesthetics to really pull off something and says something about himself and humanity and that he's able to share that with us I think is is really great I'm really glad we're doing this if you can't tell uh this was a lot of fun and I want I want to encourage everybody to write in. This I don't think this episode is going to come out by the time we're done recording, so we have to record this all sort of ahead of time to accommodate someone's med school schedule. But email in, like, let us know what you think. Are the Batman movies better than his other his other movies? I think there's a combination of me that like I've seen the Batman movies so many times, especially the Dark Knight, and I haven't seen his other movies as much, and so I was like looking more forward to those. But also they just might be like like the Batman movies are really good versions of things that we've seen a lot before, whereas these are in a sense new and unexplored territory and I know that we've had sci-fi movies before and like Interstellar is not wildly different from you know a lot of other movies that come out recently but I also love it and like this there's three magic movies that came out this year like in 2006 when we're talking about this but like I just think that I was excited to do this because I wanted to talk about the Batman movies and now I'm finding that I have I'm having more fun re-watching the other movies so write in, email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. Again, I don't know if it's going to be, if we're going to get your email, if you write in right now, by the time that we finish recording this, but we can always, you know, next time he makes a movie or just on the next run of Cinemakers, or even if we don't read it out loud, if it's just like you want to let us know, just say hi. Let us know what you think of the Batman movies, the not Batman movies, Christopher Nolan, whatever. Go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Just, you know, say hi, follow us. We have a newsletter, cageclub.me slash newsletter. Just go do all the things. Things. They're all there for you if you want them. That's all I got. I'm Jimmy Lewandowski. 
I'm Mike Manzi. Abracadabra. I'm Chris Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for The Dark Knight on to the Makers. Bye.